Let us pray. Lord, we thank you now as we come to your word that we have the freedom to do so. And as we come together to listen to what it is that you have to say to us through the Bible, we pray this morning that you would help us to know what it means to serve with joy in the new life of the Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, and we're looking this morning at verses 5 and 6. Romans chapter 7, verses 5 to 6. A less traditional celebration uh, takes place earlier in the month of May, on May the 4th. And on May the 4th, Star Wars aficionados celebrate uh, May the Force be with you. Some of us know that. Now, we're looking this Pentecost Sunday at uh, the work of the Spirit. And is the work of the Spirit like having the force with us? And if it is different from that, how is it different? Well, let's uh, listen to what the Bible says about serving by the Spirit. As I say, it's Romans chapter 7 and verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life, of the Spirit. When you play tennis, you will not do very well until you have a half-decent serve. Some years ago, I picked up a tennis racket again for the first time for ages and discovered that my serve was not as good as it had once been. I assumed that I would be right back where I was when I last played, but that was a false assumption. I needed to relearn how to serve. In the Christian life, too, serving is not as easy as it sometimes looks. We can serve with humility or with arrogance. We can serve with gratitude or with grumbling. We can serve with maturity or with childishness. And uh, you see in the passage in front of us today, Paul is contrasting two ways of serving. One is what we could call the religious way of serving. The other is the spiritual way. How's your serve? This is teaching us the following. Serve God in the newness of the Spirit. And this morning I'll explain why this passage is teaching us to serve God in the newness of the Spirit and then show us what it means to serve God in the newness of the Spirit. So this passage teaches that we are to serve God in the newness of the Spirit by presenting a stark contrast. It's very striking. 
You have what life is like living under the law in verse 5, with what life is like as a Christian living in the Spirit in verse 6. I'm going to explain and apply each of these terms of these verses, and as I do so, I think we will see an ongoing contrast, a stark contrast between oldness of law and newness of spirit. So verse 5 introduces the oldness of law by the word for, because Paul is now showing why he had just said what he had just said in verse 4, which as we saw last week was that those in Christ are now released from their marriage to the law and now have a new husband, namely Christ. This new marriage means that those who are in Christ, he has said, bear fruit for God. But why? How does that work? And so Paul now shows how a Christian's marriage to Christ does bear fruit to God. And he tells us that's the purpose of these next two verses by beginning in verse 5 by saying, for or because or for this reason or let me explain now why I said what I just said. Now it's very important when we study the Bible that we notice these connecting words. The Bible is not a collection of best thoughts of the day or Instagram or Twitter quotes as fine as those things can be. The Bible has a message, a point, an argument. It is saying something. It is not just a collection of sayings about some things. Ultimately, the Bible is a message about God and about Christ, not a collection of best thoughts and aphorisms and random quotes. Now, it's important we notice this in our pluralistic age. See, the Bible is quite different from the Quran. The Quran is a collection of sayings and statements. But the Bible is a story. It has a message. It is arguing a case. And it all leads to Christ. So notice those connecting words like this one, for. Then Paul carries on to say, while we were living in the flesh. Now, some of us will know that the word flesh or socks in Greek is a word that has more than one meaning in the Bible, and so we cannot import all the different meanings that it has in various passages into this one. We need to find out what it is saying here. And uh, in this verse 5, I think, by flesh, Paul means the unconverted, the unregenerate, the someone who is outside of Christ. And this is made clear by the context. So these two verses here are contrasting flesh and spirit, and that contrast Paul then develops later when he comes to chapter 8 of Romans. And he doesn't develop it straight away because immediately after he is written verses 5 and 6, he's aware that what he says here about the law was so controversial for the Jewish members of the congregation that he needed straight away to spend at some length explaining what he was saying there about the law, which he does through the rest of chapter 7 before he comes back to this theme that he introduced in verses 5 and 6, and he expands it in chapter 8. I'm just telling you that so that you realize that to understand the context of this word flesh, we need to look at chapter 8, and uh, particular verse 5 and following. If you have a Bible, you can see it there. If not, I'll just read it for us. 
For those, he says, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so it is clear then that by flesh here, Paul means the unconverted person who cannot please God. In other words, there is no such thing as a half-Christian, or what some call merely a cultural Christian. Someone is either a Christian or they're not. They're either in the flesh or in the spirit. To be a Christian is to be born of God, to have God's spirit, to be a new creation. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. You cannot be half a Christian any more than you can be half a person or half in Wheaton and half in Naperville. But then, Paul says, are sinful passions. Now, this is similar to how Paul describes the flesh, for instance, in Ephesians 2 verse 3, where he says there, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, you see, the Bible makes it clear that our human appetites, eating, sex, social gatherings, and friendship, these human appetites, the Bible makes clear, are good. In fact, the Bible strongly urges pastors to teach their people that these human appetites are made by God and to be received with thanksgiving, 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. Yeah, there are those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There are still people who forbid marriage to certain kinds of people. But actually... Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And Paul says to Timothy, point these things out to, the, uh, to the, your fellow Christians, and if you do so, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And so let me say, as we talk about sinful passions, that God gives us our passions, our appetites, and they're to be received as from Him with thanksgiving. But while our natural appetites were made good, in the human sinful nature, we discover sinful passions, or what a psychologist might call drives, compulsions. And so the good natural appetites are driven on by sinful desires or our sinful passions. These then, Paul says, are actually aroused by the law. Quite a thing to say 
Imagine how the uh, Jewish members of the congregation would have felt at this point. What does he mean? What Paul is saying is that moral education alone, simply instruction about what is right and what is wrong, often does very little of any good at reforming character. Moral education alone can just make someone, frankly, a more socially acceptable sinner. It all goes back to our basic view of humans. If we basically think that humans are by nature good, then what we think they need is to be educated in the right way morally, and once they see what is right and then also see what is wrong, they will inevitably choose what is right. And if a society is built on this assumption that humans are basically good, what happens is we will remove any kind of punishment or consequences or just encourage sort of quiet conversation and lots of nice exposure to moral education and look where that is getting Western society. And the reason why it doesn't work is because people are not basically good by nature. We have sinful passions in our flesh, as unconverted people. And the law, it arouses those passions. Uh, the word arouse has the sense of working in. It's a strong, energetic word. Now, if you are a non-Christian here this morning, I, I want to point out to you that this is why, even if you are not yet a Christian, you want to encourage churches like College Church, which are evangelical, that is, gospel preaching. You want to encourage us to flourish. It's good for society. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this. The way to overcome sin is not to teach morality, it is to preach the gospel. And so then our vision as College Church is centered on the gospel because we believe the gospel is God's way to reach the world. The church is God's means of building His kingdom. And as the church increasingly aligns with this gospel, so the power of Christ will have an increasingly transformative effect on the world around us. All the law does is work within, increase, arouse sinful passion. That's why you sometimes find when someone is exposed to mere instruction about what is right and what is wrong, then what happens is they go off and experiment with what is wrong. You know, you teach teenagers about drugs or alcohol or sexual techniques in sex education, and as likely as not, they are very interested and may well want to go off and experiment. The law arouses desires. It, it has no power to stop sin or create morality. Now, I'm not trying to encourage prudishness, but an awareness that we need to be careful as to what kinds of information we expose ourselves to. Then Paul says that these were at work in our members. Now, by members, Paul means our constituent parts. That is, everything that goes up to make us, us. 
He's not just talking about the physical aspects of us. He's already described passions or the internal drives. No, he means everything that goes up to making us, us. And this, he says, was to bear fruit for death. So the unconverted person bears fruit for death in contrast to the person in Christ who, verse 4, is able to bear fruit for God. Now, what does it mean to bear fruit for death? It means that the result of a life outside of Christ is death. It's partly that the final expectation of an unconverted person can only be physical death. There is no hope for heaven, no hope beyond the grave. There's just the specter of death that hangs over every effort and achievement and declares everything that is done, in the words of Ecclesiastes, under the sun to be meaningless because he who dies with the most toys does not win, he just dies. But it is not only the expectation of final physical death, it is also the second death, as Revelation puts it, that is eternal judgment and condemnation. Physical death and the second death is the result of being in the flesh or being outside of Christ. Now then, as a church, we must keep clear the situation of those around us who do not yet know Christ. It's hard to do, isn't it, in Wheaton, when it's such a wonderful place and so many nice people and all that. But those outside of Christ are not okay. They are not fine. They are not doing all right. They are in the flesh with sinful passions at work in their members, bearing fruit for death. And this should inspire us to be active in growing a church of gospel excellence to change the world. What our world most needs is not law or moral education. What it needs is Christ and the power of the gospel. It should not depress us, the situation of those around us. It should cause us to rejoice with thanksgiving if we are real Christians. Because this is what was true of us, but no longer is true of us. And may it cause us ourselves to put our hope in the gospel. Which Paul explains by stunning contrast with the oldness of law as he introduces now newness of the Spirit in verse 6. And he starts with these two glorious words, but now. Everything has changed. There's a new situation, a new reality. It's no longer as it was. It is new, but now. There's been a seismic change that has been introduced into the world and into our lives. These two words will make any and every Christian rejoice. If they do not cause us to celebrate, I wonder whether we are even a Christian at all. 
but now. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. There's a new power by the Spirit of Christ at work in us who are in Christ. We're no longer in the flesh. We're no longer driven by internal compulsions that lead to death. But now, rejoice, Christians, celebrate. And Paul says we're released from the law. We're not, we're not released from obeying God. We're not released from the moral law of God. We're not released from being a slave of God. We're released from the law that condemns us by telling us what we must do without giving us the power to do it. We're released from condemnation. We're released from frustration. We're released from bearing fruit for death and can now bear fruit for God. And we are released, Paul says, by having died to that which held us captive. So in Christ's death and resurrection, by faith in Christ and because of our union with Christ, we too died and rose again and so now have been released from the condemnation of the law and are in Christ, and now are set free to serve. So that, Paul says, we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirits. The, the gospel is all for this purpose, so that. The people who say that gospel preaching allows people to do wrong don't understand gospel Preaching. The whole point of the gospel is to set apart a people for serving. It's all for this purpose, so that Jesus is not the Savior of our sins, so that we can keep on sinning as much as we like, but the Savior from our sins, so that now we are set free from sin and we want, we desire to serve God. Holiness is the end goal of the gospel. To be a holy people, holy as God is holy, set apart to declare his praises to the nations. We grow in maturity, Christ-likeness, godliness, all by the proclamation of the gospel to ourselves from the pulpit, in the classroom, in adult communities, in small groups, in our own lives, to each other, so that... We serve, or literally, we slave. We are slaves of God. We serve Him. We slave Him. (laughs) The gospel does not set us free from serving God. It enables us to be slaves of God. It gives us the power to be slaves of God. But that serving, slaving God is now in an entirely different manner and by a completely different method. It is no longer in the literally oldness of the letter. Paul here is referring to the writing of the law given to Moses. This law was of the letter or the written code in the sense that it was actually written down. So this then is not a contrast between the so-called letter of the law versus the 
Spirit of the Lord. No, no, no. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. This is a contrast between the law that was written on tablets of stone, the letter, and the law that is written on human hearts by his Spirit. And so we no longer slave, serve in this oldness of the writing of the law, the written code. Now we serve, slave in literally the newness of the Spirit. There's a new thing that God has done. It's a, it's a new heart that He's given us, a new desire, a new set of affections and inclinations to serve God now. Before we were living in the flesh, living under the law, natural human appetites of the natural human nature warped by sin so that our sinful desires drove us, compelled us, captivate us. This is the merely religious way of serving God. Those sinful passions are stimulated, energized, aroused, worked in us actually through the law. Hearing about moral education stimulates us to wrong, not to right. It was true in all the different parts of ourselves, all our members, all the constituent parts that go out to make us, us, mentally as well as physically. And all this was leading to only one place, the grave, and only to one result, eternal death. But now we're released from the condemnation of the law. We now are in Christ. Having died with him, we're regenerated, that is, made new through the power of his resurrection. So we're able to serve him in a new way. No longer are we subject to the frustration in serving in the oldness of the written code, told to do things but unable to do them. We're now serving in the newness of the Spirit. We have His Spirit with us, within us. We have moved from the realm of law, flesh, death, to the realm of Christ, Spirit, life. And therefore, this is now the new pattern after which we are to serve God. Not in the oldness of the written code, but in the newness of the Spirit. I believe this is teaching us to serve God in the newness of the Spirit. Thinking through an illustration for what it means to serve God in the newness of the Spirit, just this morning uh, talking, well, it wasn't actually over breakfast, I'd already eaten breakfast. Thinking through how, you know, these days, one of the challenges of being a parent is what kind of device do you give to your child at what time? You know, do you give them a phone? And when do you give them a phone? How do you allow them to have access to the internet? When do you allow them to have access to the internet? And uh, there's a particular device called an iPod Touch, it's not a phone. Um, but it allows you to have access to the internet when you are close to Wi-Fi. So you can go to Starbucks and connect to the internet or come to church and connect to the internet, the free Wi-Fi, should it be working. And uh, then you're online, you're connected. You go out of reach of the Wi-Fi and however hard you punch on that app, 
you won't connect. Serving God by the newness of the Spirit requires constant cultivation, constant connection. Paul applies his teaching here in Romans 7, 5, and 6, and Romans 8 in three ways. Let me indicate these three ways at the close of the sermon. They are these. A new connection to holiness, a new connection to prayer, a new connection to suffering. First, a new connection or attitude to holiness this is verse 13 of Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is heart holiness, this new attitude to holiness. By the Spirit, we now move beyond superficial allegiance to God's law to a, to a soft heart. Jesus taught us this, didn't he? We don't simply avoid murder, we dig out hate. We don't simply avoid adultery, we remove lust. I know one man who discovered that Christ demanded more of him, not less than the written code, but that Christ by His Spirit also gave power, not condemnation, and whose relationship with God is now in purity and integrity by the power of the Spirit. Second, a new attitude to prayer. This is verse 15 of chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this new attitude to prayer is sonship prayer. To be a son in the ancient world was to receive the inheritance, male or female, in Christ we are sons. And so Christians approach God with confidence, intimacy, and the direct access of sonship. The characteristic of living in the Spirit is fervent, frequent, intimate, conversational prayer with God as our Father. I know a banker whose prayer life was transformed by realizing that he could pray in the Spirit at all times, in all places, at work, before making a deal, before a business lunch, constantly crying out to the Father for power and insight and help in the freedom of the Spirit. Third, a new attitude to suffering. As I say, each of these are applied at great length in Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at them when we get there, but these 
are the ways that Paul applies his teaching in Romans 7, verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 23, a new attitude to suffering. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this new attitude to suffering is hope-filled suffering. The Christian is able to rise above his immediate painful surroundings to scan the eternal horizon and understand by his confident position as a son, therefore grown inwardly, but also eagerly for the final redemption of our bodies. Redemption of the body that seems like better and better news each year longer I live. Suffering is never easy. Otherwise, it would be called pleasure, not suffering. But I know a person whose sick bed was the footstool to more people coming to know Christ than anyone else in his town for years before. New attitude to holiness, heart holiness. I, I want to please him. A new attitude to prayer, sonship prayer. Abba, Father, praying to God with the freedom and access and intimacy of a son to a father. A new attitude to suffering, hope-filled suffering. Scanning the eternal horizon, understanding the purpose of God, and so being filled with hope even in the midst of pain. All because we now serve God in the newness of the Spirit. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we begin with that application to prayer. And so we cry out in the name of Jesus to our Father, Abba Father. We ask for the filling of your Spirit to renew our connection. We ask for strength, power to serve. We ask for the fruit of the Spirit, love, humble love. All the aspects of Christ-like character. Lord, we pray for then 
holiness by your Spirit. Would you dig out from us unrighteous anger? Would you remove from us juvenile lust? Would you free us from the love of money? Would you show us Jesus in all his glory? And so we serve with delight in the power of his spirit. And Lord, we also apply, as Paul does, this teaching about serving in the newness of the Spirit to suffering. Lord, I know full well that there are people in front of me right now whose heads are bowed, who are going through painful times, perhaps uh, relationship friction, perhaps cancer. Lord, how is it that we could, while groaning inwardly, also eagerly look forward with hope? We are not equal to these things, but by your Spirit, you can give us the mind of Christ to see how the weight of glory far outweighs, is far more substantial than any passing temporary suffering. We pray that you would show us that. As Christian and Keith uh, encouraged us, we pray we would lean into you in such times of suffering that by your Spirit you would do a new work in us and fill us miraculously even now with hope. And we pray these things, Father God, in the name of Jesus, and by his Spirit, amen.